0: means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with Future FutureJack Podcast. Um, my guest today is Joseph Weinberg, uh, founder of Paycase, P-A-Y-C-A-S-E. Joe, how are you doing?
2: I'm very well, Richard. Thanks for having me. How are you?
1: Good, good, yeah. So uh, tell me about Paycase. What do you guys do?
2: Yeah, so Paycase traditionally is kind of focused in the remittance space. Uh, We're probably one of the oldest, if not the oldest, and one of the biggest Bitcoin companies here in Canada. Um, So initially, kind of really started focusing on remittances, as I'm sure many of your other podcast uh, uh, attendees have uh, talked about before. Uh, I then kind of started to move towards more into the the business-to-business transactions globally. So how do you move money from one country to another? Uh, Just kind of more of a broad perspective. Uh, Then we're moving back into the exchange space early end of this year, early next year as well. Uh, Working on a couple other kind of plays as well, but traditionally the question of kind of how do you move money from one country to another, broadly speaking. So.
1: So you guys right now you're focused on remittances from where to where, or are you? Yeah, so Canada's.
2: Yeah, well, so we're we're about to actually start launching in many different countries, but what we really kind of focused on was the corridors that made sense from Canada going outward. So. Quick kind of little uh, fun facts. Canada's actually the largest remitter per capita in the world. So based on our population size, we send out more money um, and generally to kind of three or four countries, which is um, China, India, and the Philippines, uh, with Mexico as a kind of the second. Um, and so we've kind of really targeted and focused primarily on the Philippines corridor, so Canada-Philippines, uh, but we're plugged into about 30 countries around the world right now. So kind of it's a question of when do we turn
1: on. But So right now, Canada-Philippines, how much? Uh, Gets remitted to that channel every year? Uh, It's about two to four billion. It's kind of changing,
2: of course, every year. Um, So, between that corridor, it's about, yeah, two and a half to three billion generally on average per year, uh, growing quite quickly. I mean, Canada's also about 26% of our population uh, is actually immigrants as well, first and second generation. So, we have a kind of a massive amount of money moving outwards. And so, that's kind of the initial focus.
1: Uh, India looks at about four to six billion. Um in China around the six billion as well. So. so tell me what's it like and what are the fees for a traditional remittance right now? Do you guys use like Western Union, MoneyGram, or you know, what's the pack? Yeah.
2: I mean so I think that, I mean some of your other like uh kind of people who've been on before were kind of saying seven and a half percent. We see it as being a lot lower. Um, and, I mean, I think it's obviously very much corridor kind of dependent and, and depends on where you're moving money to. Uh, but, I mean, on average, you're looking at about, you know, 4 to 5% on average. I think w- the way that we kind of really looked at it was less so much to say, can you beat it from a percentage perspective, but more so can you focus on an area in remittances that's not really Focused on very much in traditional, uh, and that would be something with what we call STR small vo- SVR sorry small value remittances. So the idea that you can move transactions in the three hundred dollar and under kind of range has traditionally been impossible. Uh, I mean, the way that banks traditionally actually look at um, tr- micro transactions, they view a micro as anything under thousand dollars, and they actually really? struggle if if yeah, it's actually very interesting. We spent a long time working with our banks across Canada, and 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 that's what they that's
1: what they view as a micro transaction. <laughs> 99% of people don't view that as a microtransaction.
2: That's the big thing. And so, like, and it's actually interesting because the majority of banks, they actually struggle if are even able to send anything under $300. So when you're looking at it from how did they even move it, it just becomes nearly impossible to do it over traditional infrastructure. Um, so we kind of looked at it to say, okay, well, any type of a payment kind of transaction that involves these kind of more micro quote unquote, not from our definition in the Bitcoin space of course, but but broadly speaking in the traditional space is kind of where an area we found that we could kind of really focus and when it looks at, you know, the comparison between us as to let's say a Western Union, we reduce the cost by about I said sixty to ninety percent depending on where the corridor is. Um huh. and that's kind of as where we are today.
1: So So what happens if you want to send money from uh Canada to the Philippines, like three hundred bucks or two hundred bucks, what what will happen?
2: Yes, like from and? our perspective or yeah. Yeah. So you can. So basically the way that it works is like a, the way that, and I guess it's kind of a, the way that I always kind of look at all of this is that, you know, whether you're transfer wise, your world remit, you're any of these companies that are, you know, working on kind of these new tech solutions to remittances is what, what most people don't realize is that the back end quote unquote, from a business process perspective is actually the banks and the corresponding banking network. Right. So, so at the end of the day is that what you have is you can work on all of these different ways, whether it be, you know, pooling transactions. So you'll do maybe one bulk transaction per day on behalf of hundreds of users, right, as a way to kind of reduce the cost of your Swift process transactions. Um, But when it comes down to being able to move a $300 transaction, you'd never do it individually, right? So what you do is you'll bulk or batch transactions, and then you'll run it that way. Um, And so that's kind of the way that everyone, you know, no matter how technologically you know, savvy you are at changing your front end and kind of middleware experiences at the end of the day your back end is still kind of stuck with the way that the swift network works um, and so that's kind of where we look at the differentiation so it comes down to an operational cost perspective how do you reduce the overall processes involved and a compliance thing which is actually the big thing that most people don't realize is the kyc process becomes is really 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 rigid and and traditionally speaking that's where a lot of your costs actually are, are kind of you know kind of incoming um and so and so that also becomes a really big blocker in the ability to move transactions at really low cost interesting um
1: okay so people so they'll <laughs> if i want to send under a thousand dollars they'll batch my transaction with a bunch of others and how long would it take you know to get to the philippines specifically.
2: yeah i mean so it's it, so generally what they'll do is it's really dependent on how much they charge you right so for any you know money will pay for anything to move fast, right? So generally what happens like in traditional markets is what they'll do is they'll have large float deposits in different currencies. And so then what they're doing is they're managing risk over multiple different jurisdictions and the different fiat currencies that they have in those places. So uh, let's say I'm a Western Union. might have, you know, a billion dollars sitting uh, in Filipino pesos in the Philippines. So the moment that, you know, you're kind of running this this rebalancing kind of game as you're doing it, Um, But, of course, those floats then require a tremendous amount of of, of arbitrage. You're having to look at the risk involved in multiple currencies that are a lot more volatile in different jurisdictions. So, you have this impeding cost that starts to really kind of increase quite rapidly, just in an operational kind of capacity. Uh, And so, the idea that we can actually reduce the floats, number one, if not eliminate them entirely in the not-so-distant future. Just that, even in and of itself, starts to reduce drastically your costs of risk and the overall operation of your business. Um, so uh, it's kind of looking at it from a more infrastructure, low-level question, as opposed to saying, "Oh, we can send money for free around the world." Um, so, gotcha.
1: <laughs> so how? Yeah, what what kind of rails do you guys use to send money? Are you all in fiat? Do you use crypto? How do you do it? All crypto. So we so uh, similar to some of your
2: other kind of past uh, conversations on the show, uh, we are basically what our philosophy was back in 2013 was that the user, at least for the next kind of five to seven years, would be better off understanding and feeling the advantages of the Bitcoin network without having to kind of deal with the complexities of the currency. Uh, It is of my mind, I think that over time that actually will change and I actually think that that's less so and will become less so the case over time, Uh, just as adoption starts to kind of become a lot more mainstream. I mean, in Canada, we're already seeing a lot of our users actually, you know, wanting to be able to actually interact or, you know, touch Bitcoin as an actual currency itself. Um, But, I mean, I think the the idea was for us was, could we enable, you know, all of our communities here to start to move money over the Bitcoin network without having to deal with the complexities? Um, And I think that that's something that we've been very good at uh, for the last kind of couple of years. We're also working, uh, we work very closely with a company called Blockstream and Rootstock as well, and on kind of two protocol upgrades or layer two solutions as we kind of look at them um, that allow us to drastically change the... I would say the topology of the network via transactions, so it allows us to speed up and actually make cheaper the cost of current existing transactions on the Bitcoin network. Um but I mean we yeah, we 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 work with whatever liquidity depth makes the most sense if that makes sense.
1: So tell you know, so how does it work? So I'm sitting here and I want to send money to my grandma in the Philippines, you know, let's say I'm in Canada. Like what are the steps and what happens to the money?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's very similar to, to, to most other solutions. So we have a so the other thing too it's important to note is that in Canada we put ninety-nine percent of our economy are all banked. So we don't have this we don't have the sending side to have with a with a big issue in terms of how do they actually get access to financial services. So basically you'll log into the application or also via an API. So we actually also integrate with a lot of companies that we'll be announcing kind of over the next quarter, uh, but large institutions, FX providers, uh, traditional kind of businesses as well. Uh, but you'll basically go through a compliance process So you do kind of real-time KYC checks and analysis to make sure that you, know, you are who you say you are and everything's kosher. Uh, from there, then you will basically we'll quote you an FX rate uh, that's based on the current existing Bitcoin price on the buy side and the sell side in Canada and the jurisdiction country that you're sending to. Uh, and then from there, we basically quote the transaction, confirm the transaction, and then we use a multiple different kind of set of payment processing options to actually fund that transaction. And then we uh, process a Bitcoin transaction to another country, instantly converted on the other side. And then whatever the destination is, uh, we also have about 25,000 delivery channels that we're working with across the Philippines right now that allow us to basically get money into the hands of people that might not be banked in that country. Um, and so it's a, it's a pretty seamless experience, whether it be on mobile or a desktop or, or API. So.
1: so, yeah, if I have, uh, you know, 1000 Canadian dollars, I go into your app, I register all that stuff. I send money to the app, and then, what, it's converted to Bitcoin? Or, you know, how does it move yeah, over? Yeah,
2: so you don't actually know that that's even happening. So basically what's happening is we're actually running a Bitcoin transaction on the side. So basically we say, okay, we're going to quote you the Bitcoin buy price and the sell price. And from that, we actually create our our um, our actual Canadian dollar buy side and our filipino currency sell side right so it's basically creating a foreign exchange which actually traditionally the way that actually the like the banks work is that they'll look and give you a spot rate right or a mid midday rate uh which is sure. the canadian dollar rate and then they look to find that you know the jurisdictional currency that you're doing like the peso and then from there they'll basically say okay here's your rate in between both of these currencies and then they'll add their spreads into it and also add their percentage fees or, or however they charge so what we're basically doing is we're actually using the bitcoin network as a way to create that actual price comparison as opposed to actually using the the banks or the interbank rate um, and so you don't actually know that that's happening we're basically just you know reusing that into a canadian dollar and a filipino peso kind of pair if you will um, and so you'll basically fund the transaction provided you confirmed it uh, you're not moving or touching any of the bitcoin we're basically dealing with the entire flow through transaction process on the back end uh, and your money just shows up in Filipino pesos and let's say your grandmother's bank account or cash
1: outlet or, or something of the sort that she chooses. So. Okay, right. So both parties don't even know that the coins involved, not, neither not do they all. care, but okay, they get no. the benefits.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Right. The idea is
1: they get it fast and they get it cheap.
2: <laughs> and again, it happens and we assure the transaction goes through. So that's the important part.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. That's great. Okay. Yeah. Um, you said that you're going to be opening up other countries. What are some of the first other rails that you're going to be opening up, or, or pathways?
2: Yeah, so we've we've uh, like so I guess prior to actually building Paycase, I helped start two of the largest Bitcoin exchanges here in Canada, and so kind of our our roots in the in the exchange side have always been you know pretty deep, uh, and so the way that we actually operate is we sit on top of global exchanges pretty much everywhere around the world at this point, point. Um, and so India has been a major focus for us. Um, Over the last kind of six months, we just uh, are just open pay case kind of India, if you will. Uh, We're working on some very large strategic integrations across the country. So anything from wallet payment processing providers. Um, uh, mobile wallets, um, uh, banks, uh, telecommunications companies, we have a lot of kind of strategic inroads that'll be opening in probably the first or second quarter of 2018. Um, and so we'll be very much focused on India for the next kind of coming months. Uh, Mexico has been a big one is with us as well. Um, so the guys over at have been very close partners of ours for a long time. So we have a lot of kind of ability to run flow and transactions which we're actually already starting right now so that'll be opening in the next kind of month or two I'd say. Um, and then we have a couple others that are yet to be announced, say, but
1: but they're coming. Not, not North Korea. No, I'm just kidding.
2: No, I thought that we just you know kind <laughs> of sidewind that one until they calm down. But I mean, it's, it's definitely not on our radar. But.
1: Yeah, only Dennis <laughs> Rodney would interested stuff. in that one. But. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, I yeah, know Australia is another really big market that we'll be making some announcements in probably the end of this year, early next year, across a, a multitude of different kind of products that stretch beyond remittances, actually. So
1: Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask you next. Tell me about the um the B2B products. What what are those gonna be?
2: Yeah, so uh so we've been working on a on a couple of large FX players uh both here in Canada and around the world um banks divisions in the banks that deal directly in foreign transactions uh and what we've kind of also then really hinted on is the idea that and this kind of came to us about a year ago with one of our initial partners but was the idea that there's a lot of companies around the world that just have the same microtransactional problem as as anyone else right so whether traditionally as i said you know even companies the back ends of them are banks Right. And so the question is, is and of course, with that, the SWIFT network. And so the, the idea that you could have, let's say, for example, Uber being able to process transactions. So, you know, the idea that you have a $20 transaction on a credit card could be anywhere in the world. The ability for them to reconcile and settle those transactions at scale become incredibly complex. Um, and so we're finding a lot of really interesting use cases across some very large companies here in Canada um, and actually a few in a few other countries as well. Um, That would enable them to actually run either internal process transactions, so the idea that, you know, they're sending $50, $100 transactions, the ability for them to not have to batch those transactions, but do those in real time is very, very beneficial, Um, and then more so actually just directly on the customer transaction side, so how to, you know, enable a company to move money uh, in order to pay for a service for a user or something of that sort. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of really interesting use cases on that side. And then, of course, foreign exchange companies are also becoming very, very interested in can they use the rail to simply reduce their costs in microtransaction brackets? Um, so we'll have a lot of announcements coming out soon, but these are the kind of the areas that we're noticing that we have a lot of strategic interest, I'd say, and a lot of success. So,
1: so one, yeah, you know, the first one you alluded to sounds like a, um, a real-time merchant account, right? I guess yeah, traditionally merchants more. have to take transactions, wait, batch them out, and then it takes X number of days so they get them in their account, right?
2: Exactly. That's basically what it is. I mean, the reality is that the Bitcoin network as it sits today is just not able to do these things at, you know, at the speeds that we want. But uh and I think that's a, like we we spent the last kind of 3 years really investing in the layer 2 solutions of, you know, that'll be coming out of the gate pretty soon as really a way to solve those types of problems because I mean, those are like those are the very easy kind of low-hanging fruits if you can make the technology work for the problem. Um but it really becomes that effectively correct. Yeah. And the idea is also that you you start to disintermediate the ability for payment processors to actually have to process the payment from a merchant account perspective such that the companies can actually be in charge of their own merchant services effectively, right? Because you're effectively giving them the ability to now transact however they need to without the need to go to an intermediary.
1: Can you go a little bit more in detail into the other services? You said um, people want to be able to do microtransactions. What, What kind of microtransactions and where? To where. Yeah,
2: and use cases like very, very broadly, um, and so they could be anywhere. So you could be paying, you know, employees in different countries. Um, you could be doing transactions that deal for. Cl- so we have a clothing company that's come to us right now. That's you know that's actually accepting payments uh, on their online stores. that basically, they want the ability to have people do transactions for cheaper. Uh, Shopify uh, stores are very interesting use cases for that type of problem. But then even looking more into actually how do you settle it? Like, so any company that operates globally has a big problem in settlement. So coming back to the kind of the Uber model, that is a big problem for every single company that works cross-jurisdictionally, right? So the idea that you have to settle transactions. I could be, let's say, in India with a Canadian Visa card, and I'm having to basically settle these transactions at a global scale becomes so enormously complex and expensive that you can reduce the cost of that by even 70% and it changes your entire business. Um, We're seeing like a lot of use cases for very, very, very interestingly kind of out there use cases where you have people in the Maritimes, which are kind of in the the more um, eastern part of Canada that are are sailors and ship providers that have the the need to send money home either on behalf of their families or when boats are coming. Like there's all of these very, very odd and interesting kind of use cases that we're noticing. but, I mean, it really becomes anything. The question of, like, how do you move money and can you do it fractionally? Um, that just opens up an entirely new kind of area and dimension, I think, in money and kind of the ability
1: to move it. So so how do companies operate, like Uber that operate in all these countries? What do they have to do? Do they have to keep capital on hand in 20 different countries and all the countries in what's it
2: It's actually worth – well, so no, so the idea is that you're running credit card transactions everywhere, right? So basically what you do is you have almost – up, sometimes up to a, you know a week to a 30-day lead time on settlement. So – even drivers so the uber drivers are actually it takes them seven days to settle right so you're looking at all these different kind of people in the supply chain of a company so whether it be uh, the uber's headquarters or satellite offices that are all having to move money across both you have the actual driver who actually has to be paid in all these different countries you have um, the actual the, um, the the passenger that has to complete the actual payment and then you have all and then if i'm moving into different countries which of course most people do and they use uber everywhere You have, like, all of these layers of complexity that just become enormous, right? And so you're having to, number one, hold massive floats in order to actually keep up. You're having to deal with massive amounts of chargebacks and fraud as well. You're also dealing with multiple currencies because as the credit cards, let's say, are being actually processed, you're dealing with fluctuating currency rates and you're having to deal with this massive mixed match of, like, just... You know, enormously different, weird technical problems um, to the point where it's costing them, like, it's probably, I would say, costing them at least 10 to 20% of their overall business as a whole in just being able to manage transactions
1: at a global scale. Um, And those are all microtransactions, too. It cost them 10 to 20 percent. You think of their of their profit. You know, in in
2: in overall operating costs, I'd say that that would be 10 to 20 percent of their whatever they would actually pay in operations. I bet you that the transactions and their ability, like their entire payment department, probably cost them somewhere at least in the range of almost 10 percent of their overall. It is massive because you're also dealing with risk, you're yeah. dealing with compliance, you're having to deal with all of these things that become so complex because you're dealing not just with a user, right? Your users become. You know your drivers, your users themselves, all of these different people, um, and then you might have tie-ins, you might have different relationships, partnerships. Like it's you know you go into Uber Eats, That's a whole other part of the company, so it's like <laughs> the layers just get deeper and deeper, and it gets more and more complex. So it's a it's an interesting kind of That's equation crazy. to solve, if you will. Yeah, it is absolutely. And Airbnb, I'm sure, would be much in that same kind of department as well. So do
1: so you think Bitcoin's gonna be it? That'll be the rail that uh, you can. Yeah. Or are you going to try Ethereum or other tokens?
2: No. So we've, I mean, like, so we, we, I mean, I bought, I've been in Bitcoin since uh, mid-end of 2011. I mean, like the way that we kind of look at it is the question of what works and what is actually solving a problem. Uh, We like also sit very close to Bitcoin Core and been kind of really grateful to have, you know, a lot of really good technical people around us. And it just comes down to the question of what actually works and what is the problem that you're solving. Um, I was, you know, I'm based here in Toronto, you know, Anthony Giorgio and one of the guys at uh, Ethereum have been close friends of ours We were there when Ethereum was first founded. And I think that what you have to, like, the way, the way that we really look at it is, it is what makes sense and what is a nice idea. And, and, you know, one plus one has to equal two and doesn't equal six. Uh, and when you're looking at the way that the networks actually function and the way that they're supposed to function is, A, you cannot have infinite growth on a finite system i.e. you cannot allow the amount of data and transactions to, you know, go over over exceed what the network can actually handle from a capacity standpoint. I mean, Bitcoin has a problem in scaling money transactions, and it's literally only transactions in money. So when you're looking at how do you enable the ability for something like Ethereum to even handle a Facebook, you'd need 25,000 times the amount of scale to even just allow just Facebook to sit on that network. Right. And so like when you're um, looking at it from a question of is that even it becomes impossible. Right. I mean, it, it's like people kind of it's this weird thing that we're in right now in, this, in the environment we're in, where we have this idea that because it's simple and because it's easy, i.e. Ethereum, everyone wants to use it. And now they think it solves all problems because that's kind of the way it's been marketed. But the reality is, is that this is like hard, deep science. There's a lot of science to this. Right. And so the idea is that, like, you cannot enable open networks to scale that way. They just don't do it. They were never meant to right? And so it's kind of like solving a problem that becomes impossibly hard or if not completely impossible to solve. Um, And I think that we're going through this weird phase where, you know, we have this blockchain hype, which is kind of in the 1999, you know, pre-bubble kind of popping phase. But from an infrastructure perspective, like where we are in the actual network, we're in like 92, 93. Like like the network is so early. And I'm talking about the Bitcoin network because it's i um, in my opinion, the only one that's actually proven to actually work, right? Like, when you look at the question of what is the problem, is it solving, and is it actually doing it, Ethereum is trying to kind of understand what its use case is, but the idea that you can have infinite use cases and infinite, you know, applications just does not make sense for a distributed and open network. It doesn't really work. That's what centralized services are for, and they're really good at <laughs> Um So, hey, I mean, we would use whatever works to solve the problem. What we kind of looked at was... The reality that layer twos and layer three solutions are the only way that you'll ever scale networks, and really the idea that you want i'm sorry if I'm kind of rambling here and this is hopefully not too off topic and stop me if i am um but really the way that we kind of looked at it was was the was the question of uh, of of what are the security trade offs that you need right so when you're looking at the way that you scale networks and is a really important thing is that you have to have security trade offs so so the idea that Bitcoin is slow and rigid, and in my opinion, actually, Bitcoin doesn't have a scaling problem. Uh, Bitcoin wasn't actually meant to scale. Uh, and that Bitcoin is meant to be slow and rigid because that's what it gives you your security assurances. Uh, and then the question becomes, as you look at layer twos or layer threes, what you trade off in security, you give in you know, transaction capacity throughput or the ability to scale additional data frameworks. Um, so it becomes less about how do you scale on chain, but how do you ensure the chain is open enough and has enough throughput that would enable you to scale atop of it and not into it, um, if that makes sense. Um, so, uh, yeah, we we use what we think works best. And right now, the, you know, the greatest engineers and cryptographers and distributed systems engineers and and everyone of that sort are still working on Bitcoin. And I think there's a reason for it,
1: but I don't know, <laughs> I could be wrong. No, no, it's interesting to hear you talk about this. So, what do you think is? Let's talk about the future a little bit. I know it's off topic, but why not? Um, What do you think Bitcoin is going to be able to scale, and Ethereum is going to be able to scale, and how will they scale? What's your thoughts for the next couple of years ahead?
2: Yeah, so I think that what you'll see, I think in the next 18 to 24 months, you'll see the first billion people go onto the Bitcoin network. And I don't mean into the network, as in you don't actually scale, of course, on the network, like into it. You do not allow the the network to scale, but the layer two solutions that are built on top of it is where you will scale. And so the question that I always ask is, whatever Ethereum's doing, like, why do we need, like, the Internet's not based off of hundreds of protocols, it's based off of one that layers, you know, seven to eight protocols on top of it, right? And the idea that we have multiple co- protocols that are doing multiple things, first of all, interoperability just becomes so complex that you'll never build the next Internet, no matter, it just doesn't work, it becomes very, very hard. But the idea is that if you can start to look at you know the smart contracting environment of ethereum and you can you know embed that into the bitcoin network where you're effectively the question becomes why do i even need ethereum right or why do i need all of these protocols that people are building and so i think that what you'll see over time is that bitcoin will continue to do what it's doing but your ability to scale all of these different additions into the network will become and are actually becoming faster and faster to actually create and produce such that you have the ability to extend all of these value systems that are being built on top of, you know, all these disparate protocols will start to align over to one chain. Really, um, really becomes kind of like the, you know, you know, the bedrock, and then you build your buildings on top of it. Um, and, and that really just becomes from the, I mean, I think that Ethereum will have its position. I think everything, by the way, just goes to a thousand because markets don't necessarily work off of logic. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, and I think that they all will find their place, but I think that, you have a massive problem when you're scaling Ethereum and I think that if you're looking at things like proof of stake, and I think it's also really, really important for people to understand and kind of, you know, everyone's, you know, needs to, I think it's, we're going to have to go through a sobering up phase here, but but, but I think that there's a reason why you look at things like proof of stake um, and these scaling solutions that everyone's kind of proposing and then Ethereum is going through. Actually, I think today, if I'm not mistaken, they're actually, they're, they're, they're hard forking, I believe, today. Or going through an upgrade, um, but I think that what like we have to look at is what's the history and what's the actual science, right? So the one reason why Bitcoin and Bitcoin Core uh, and the creators of Bitcoin it never allowed and enabled proof of stake uh, as a consensus mechanism is that you have no. There's always a, an ability to game the system. So the idea that you can actually create perverse incentives or adversarial incentives in a staking system would actually then become very problematic. Like if I own 2% of the Ethereum network, I could effectively have, and I do effectively have a greater voting mechanism. So when it comes down to creating an insured decentralized network, proof of work is there for a very good reason. It ensures that we have the ability to not have people gamifying the system. And I think that over time, you know, as these things start to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're seeing this in Bitcoin already, is that the adversaries that you have and these things and people and institutions that come in to try to, you know, threaten that network or take control, these things become ever more and more important in ensuring the actual stability of them, right? If you can gain the system, I can guarantee you that government agencies around the world will and probably already are, or maybe already are, um, trying to ensure that they can have control. Right. And so when you have to understand that control is a very, very important thing that everyone wants. Right. And so your your ability to scale and the success of all of these protocols, it's in the inability for people to take control and to ensure that the rules and enforcement are being created, because with that, we can then build really interesting things on top of them. I'm sure that was a big ramble, but hopefully
1: that made sense. <laughs> I, don't know. I like to hear these thoughts. I mean, it's, you know, you don't, you don't get them <laughs> from people very often. So, yeah. okay it's good well, that we speak well, out i think that's yeah. <laughs> yeah no you have to you have to and you're close to core and bitcoin core and i know they have their particular philosophy and other people have theirs so it's uh you know it's good to hear this stuff yeah
2: yeah it is it's good i mean yes yeah, so, like we're we're actually working on a on a on a protocol right now uh that that sits it's it's a distributed solution and under the centralized one uh but kind of taking those same premises of how do you actually build identity by way of credibility or reputation uh and so it's a network will be announcing in the next couple of weeks um but it's really kind of takes on that same concept of how do you look at layer two solutions with scale kind of identity services around the world uh, but that's kind of the yeah that's kind of always
1: been our viewpoint at least so. all right so yeah let's let's wrap um how can people find out more about pay case and uh, you know talk to you guys and get involved
2: yeah, um, well, paycase.com, easy way to do it. Uh, we're on Twitter as well, at paycasefin, F-I-N. Um, and me and Joseph Weinberg as well. Uh, we'll be announcing the Shift Network, so that'll be kind of going live to so shift.network. Variety of other
1: ways, LinkedIn, you name it, we're always around. So Okay, well, very good. Well, Joe, I appreciate you coming on the podcast.
0: Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to bitcoinsuperconference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's bitcoinsuperconference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, around the corner future technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast post to review and discover more future technologies